I'm, let's turn to um, Philippians, for one thing. I'm going to continue the Torah of faithfulness tonight, a title that I extracted from Romans 3.27. All right, let's pray. Father, it's a privilege that goes beyond words, that we are in your Son, that we are in Christ, that we participate in his life, his love, and his faithfulness. And we thank you, Father, that you're affording us a clear view of the ark, a clear view of a Christocentric salvation. And we thank you for this privilege tonight of looking into the fulfilled Torah of freedom, that we may be truly liberated and freed to be transformed into his image. And we thank you for this privilege in his name. Amen. This is part two of what I might call the Torah of faithfulness, but I'll, I'll fine-tune the title even a little more tonight and call it the Torah of Messiah's Fidelity. It's one way to describe the gospel, the Torah or the revelation of Messiah, his fidelity, the Torah of Messiah's fidelity. It's extracted from a phrase in Romans chapter 3 and verse 27 when the opposing teacher asks the question, where is boasting then? Paul answers, it's excluded. The teacher replies, by what kind of Torah, what kind of law, by what kind of teaching, we could say, by a teaching about works? Paul said, absolutely not, but by a law of faith, which is better translated, a Torah of faithfulness. The revelation of Messiah Jesus' faithfulness excludes any possibility of soteriological boasting, any boasting with regard to salvation. I think it's probably been years now, I was going to say several months, but several years, where we posed a question. The right question is not whether or not everyone will be saved, which is a question a lot of people ask. But whether or not Jesus Christ has universal saving significance, that's the question to ask and to be answered in the scriptures. So this makes the question not so much a soteriological one, meaning salvific one or saving one, but a Christological one. What we're dealing with in our present study, Better Call Paul, may be called a Christological soteriology, theologically speaking. It's a Christological soteriology, a Christ-centered salvation. To be saved, then, is simply to be in Christ. This phrase, which is the key expression of what we might call a participatory salvation or a participatory life in Christ, is found throughout the Pauline epistles. The word justification is found barely outside of Romans and Galatians because Paul is dealing with a specific situation, a specific exigency or exigence. And that's how we have to look at the epistles of Paul. The exigence which called forth Paul to write. The exigence which said, we better call Paul. In Christ, however, is rampant throughout the Pauline corpus to describe by a spatial metaphor or a location metaphor 
our position or location or position and condition in Christ. It's the condition of Christians in Christ. The gospel then is the proclamation of a Christological soteriology, a salvation that is wrought from beginning to end, from initiation to completion by the divine action in Christ. An action that takes place through Jesus Christ's fidelity. Therefore, we may identify the gospel by that title, by that moniker. We may call the gospel itself the revelation of Messiah's fidelity. By the gospel, the righteous saving act of God in Christ is being apocalyptically disclosed or revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness, as we've seen a few times already in Romans 1.17. And again, this is where we're working. This is where I'm doing my work. It's this little phrase, ek pistios. I said last night we're going to look a little bit more at this. I'm striving for two things, clarity and coherence on this doctrine, on the faithfulness of Christ. Ek Pistios, then we have a second phrase back to back with it, ace piston. From faith into faithfulness, from faithfulness into faithfulness. And there's a couple ways we can render this or interpret this or translate this. This phrase, ek pistios, ace piston, translated as from faithfulness to or into faithfulness may be interpreted as from Christ's individual faithfulness to Christ's faithfulness demonstrated or continued in the church, the people of God among all the nations. And so there is no way to construe this as a so-called justification by an individual's personal faith That is not what Paul is teaching. The reason I have to harp on this, harp on this, and harp on this, is we're dealing with about a 600-year-old idea, a 600-year-old contractual and, we could say, forensic and traditional construal of the gospel. Ek pistios ace piston. And this last night's message goes along with this, incidentally, if you really are serious and interested in studying this out, may also be interpreted or construed as from the faithfulness, meaning of God, to the faithfulness of Christ, the Messiah, which continues in the church among those who live by his faithfulness. Either way, the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus is highlighted here. The faithfulness of Messiah, Jesus, is highlighted. And that's why I say there's no such thing as saving faith that we read in theologies. There is, however, a saving fidelity, a saving faithfulness. The law came through Moses. The Torah came through Moses. But grace and truth, which is Absolute unilateral covenant fidelity came by Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth, as John says in 114, backing up from 117. Now we've rounded up the usual suspects. 
Romans 1.17, Romans 3.22, Romans 3.26, and where the faithfulness of Christ is used, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, twice, Galatians 2.20, where it's used in a phenomenal way. I was crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live in the life that I now live in this mortal flesh. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We'll look at that again in a moment. Now, this phrase is one of the three main things I'm focusing on for the interpretation of Romans because it is an interpretive tool. It's an interpretive trajectory for the whole of the gospel as Paul portrays it in Romans. And so as we've also seen, there are many significant verses in which some form of the phrase pistis Christu, P-I-S-T-I-S-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-U, pistis Christu, or English transliteration, pistis Christu. For the past 70 years or so, there's been a pistis Christu debate, the faith of Christ. Is it the faith of of the believer in Christ, or is it Christ's own faithfulness? Is it an objective genitive, or is it a subjective genitive? And thankfully, the Holy Spirit, I think, has led certain exegetes, scholars, and theologians, and I would say myself included as a mere pastor, teacher, to have the scales tip decidedly toward the subjective genitive of that phrase, pistis Christu, which is, the faithfulness of Christ. We showed that even Daniel B. Wallace in his book on beyond Greek grammar, beyond the basics also recognized this, that that's grammatically on balance, the best way to construe it. And he also says that many commentaries who construe this phrase or variations of it as faith in Christ are operating from what he calls a Lutheran reflex which may or may not be fair to Luther because Luther was kind of a mixed bag. He, he said some things that are extremely controversial, things I would, not dis, I would not agree with at all. And he also said some things that applied to a universal impact of the cross of Christ, a redemptive impact that's universal as he progressed in his faith. And so there is a construal of the gospel that is a justification theory. It's a forensic justification or an imputation of righteousness, etc. We know all about that. That's what I think has had its day. That theory has had its day. So as we've seen, there are many significant verses in which some form of that phrase, pistis Christu, is used, and we have established that the scales have tipped pretty decidedly to the subjective genitive of that phrase. And so it's constructed to be the faith, or perhaps better, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We've considered this especially because the righteous one, which we discovered last night again and went over with, with more clarity and coherence, the righteous one whose faithfulness is being spoken of in Romans 1.17 is Jesus Christ. And we showed verses like Acts 7.52, Acts 22.8, Acts 22.14, 1 Peter 3.18, Psalm 34.19 and 20, along with John 19.36, Zechariah 9.9, 9, 
And of course, Paul's key prophetic text for his gospel, Habakkuk 2.4. My righteous one shall live, says Yahweh, the father. He will live. That's by resurrection, by his faithfulness. Faithfulness of Jesus Christ is also called his hupakoe, the obedience of Jesus Christ. What was he obedient to? Galatians chapter 1 and verse, verse 4 and 5 says that he was obedient to the intention of God the Father. The intention of God the Father it was to invade the present age to rescue humanity and in fact all of humanity and all of creation from its plight of enslavement to suprahuman powers, namely sin, death, and what we might call the flesh, but also principalities and powers, or said in a summary phrase, to rescue us from this present evil age. What we realize in Christ, sometimes people love life as it is in this world. We go through a phase where we, maybe in our youth, we start to discover our freedom we go to a place that used to be called college. Now I don't know what they call it. A place of radical disinformation, I guess you could call it. Not in many cases, not in all cases. But we used to go there and we were free. We were free from parental concerns. So we kind of love this life. I did for approximately eight months. I thought I'd love life, this life. And then after a confrontation with Christ, we realized that we're in Christ and we have one foot in this age and another foot in the next age. And so we don't love this life, this age anymore. We don't have the problem of Demas, whom Paul says, he forsook me loving this present age. We don't love it anymore. Some Christians, therefore, get into a, I don't want to live anymore type of a thing. But once you realize that you are in the in both ages, you're in the juncture of two ages, that is all the more incentive to live because now you're in the war. And God is advancing in this war. And you've got to live out your life to the last breath because that is how you will be victorious and stand when all is said and done and stand. Therefore, Paul says, having your loins girt about with truth, etc., the whole full armor of God, put it all on, take it off the rack, put it on. Now, especially when you don't love your life in this world anymore, and you don't love this world anymore, and you don't quite have the fullness of the next age in Christ, but you're in Christ, now's the time all the more to live. I was thinking of that song the other day, war, what is it good for? Absolutely everything. Remember, absolutely nothing. War is, this war is good for absolutely everything. God has invaded this age with the intention of rescuing humanity and all creation from its slavery, its bondage to corruption and to suprahuman powers called sin, death, and the Adamic ontology when it comes to humanity. And this is why Jesus Christ was obedient to that intention of the Father to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him.
So what was he obedient to? The father's intention. The father's will. The secret of the father's will is to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. And right now he's engaged in a full-on war. And so are we. So don't give up. You live your life to the fullest. Now, because of Romans 3.27 and the radical exclusion of human boasting with regard to salvation by a law or a Torah, also known as a revelation of faithfulness. If you saw a revelation of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is his obedience, another word for it, hupakoe, the obedience of one leads to what? The justification, which is life, to all human beings. His obedience to the Father's great intention, to the extent of death, and because my righteous one is Jesus Christ, God's Son, will live, zao, he will be resurrected because of his faithfulness. He has achieved the victory in this war. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. So whether it's the obedience of Christ, hupakoe Christu, or pistis Christu, the faithfulness of Christ, what we have by the gospel is a revelation of his faithfulness to the degree that if you have a clear view of his faithfulness, you've got nothing to boast about at all in terms of appropriating this rescue. But inasmuch as people don't have this vision, they perish. They perish by trying to apply their own human efforts and human actions really against the divine action. And they get into a religious activity rather than get under the tap of divine action. It's a sad situation. And that's why you have such fierce fighting language as you have in Galatians. So once you see the fidelity of this Messiah, once you see Christ and him having been crucified, raised, exalted, enthroned, then you know there's no place to boast. For by God's sheer grace we have been saved through the faithfulness of his Messiah, not of works, so that no one can boast. Not even a work which we might call belief. Belief is a work, incidentally, but it's a work that we are to live with for the rest of our lives. What shall we do to do the works of God? Jesus said simply, this is the work of God, that you believe on the one that he sent. In other words, our participation in his faithfulness is the way that God activates his own power in our lives. That's coming up. We'll be getting to that when we get to ethics. Unless we're squared away about Christology and soteriology, we'll never understand the ethical aspect of the Christian life, which is a pneumatological ethic, a spirit-driven ethic, a Christocentric spirit-driven ethic, which justification by faith theory can't get to. They have to use... The law, they say, well, the law goes back into effect after you're justified by faith, and so you still have to obey Moses' law, but God will help you out a little bit. Well, you can have that. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. So unless we get this squared away, 
A Christological soteriology will never understand a pneumatological ethics, which is found in Romans 6.1 all the way up through Romans 8.14. And in Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 7, going all the way through, really, 6.2. So we've considered especially because of the righteous one in Habakkuk 2.4, whose fidelity is highlighted in the gospel. And because of Romans 3.27, the total exclusion of human boasting with regard to salvation by a Torah of faithfulness. We also conclude that faithfulness, the faithfulness that excludes human boasting, is the faithfulness of Jesus. Not the personal faith of an individual or of a generic Christian, but of Jesus Christ, the man, Christ Jesus. There's no mediator between God and man, but the man Christ Jesus and his faithfulness. What stands between me and God is God the Son. We're standing between God and God, not God and the devil. We're standing between God and God. And this is not the devil's world. This is God's world. He's conquered it. It's an evil age. But it was for freedom that Christ freed us. So stand fast in it. So Jesus Christ's fidelity to God's intention and to God's covenant is the reason we're saved. Nothing comes between me and God but a mediator named Christ Jesus and his faithfulness, not my faith. God's intention was his determination, his unstoppable determination, as we know from Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, and I'll call it Ephesians because I know we said it's basically really Laodiceans. But I've loved to call it Ephesians so long I still might call it Ephesians. Sometimes Laodiceans because of Colossians 4.16 is actually a letter to the Laodiceans. But if I say Ephesians, you know what I mean. And if you say it, I'll know what you mean. God's intention was and his unstoppable determination is to invade the present evil age and to rescue humanity and all of creation, for that matter, from its plight, which is a radical enslavement to superhuman powers, namely sin, death, the flesh, and the principalities and powers, mostly sin, though, which we can summarize as the present evil age. We know that all creation is included in this from Romans eight nineteen, when Paul says we know that all creation is anticipating its liberation from enslavement to corruption and that liberation comes as creation enters into the glorious liberty of the sons of God the glorified people of God by resurrection also enslaving is the Torah itself which we know from Galatians and also Romans but not the Torah itself but only through sin so also enslaving is the Torah through sin. The Torah is pure and it's spiritual and it's righteous, Paul says. It's not, a, it's not an evil thing. Neither is Judaism. But Paul says that the law, it's by the law that, we, that sin is revealed and it's revealed as to its great sinfulness. So there is a slavery to Torah through sin. We'll be getting on to that down the road. More on this later then. So the intention of God is spelled L-O-V-E. The intention of God is spelled 
love. God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world, divine mission one in this invasion of the present age. He sent his son into the world to redeem humanity from its desperate plight. The son so loved the world that he gave himself for our sins and to deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians 1.4. The Christian Jewish teachers were teaching in Galatians. They had part of their creed that the Messiah, Jesus, had died for their sins. What we're dealing with in Galatians is not the church versus the synagogue. What we're dealing with in Galatians is two Christian missions to the pagans or the Gentiles in three cities in northern Galatia, including Tavium, Pessinus, and Ancyra, those three cities. Those are the churches in Galatia. Two Christian missions, a Christian Jewish mission of teachers who claim authority from the Jerusalem body who teach that a pagan has to become circumcised as a male and then to be Christians you have to be fulfilling a comprehensive following of Torah. They believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he died for their sins. But Paul came in and he quoted that in Galatians 1.4. Christ died for our sins and to rescue us from this present age. The teachers didn't teach that. So it's a matter of two missions. Paul's mission, and he was accused of being a renegade because he laughed, you see. He was a renegade from the school of the 12 apostles in Jerusalem, is what they said. And that his gospel is a heresy. Every bad thing that's ever been said about any preacher was said about Paul. And so he wrote Galatians to straighten some people out. There's several characters in the Galatian drama. There's Paul, of course, who went to Galatians. He taught them that God has invaded this space and he's invaded this age and he's rescued them from this present age. And guess what they did? They believed it. They believed that God had done that. And they were rejoicing, he said. And he said, you would have put your own eyes out for me. You accepted me not only as an angel of God, but as Christ Jesus himself. And what's happened since then? You were running well. Who tripped you up? Who bewitched you? Who bedazzled you with a false gospel? And he dropped the hammer. Paul, after evangelizing those three churches left a group of catechetical teachers, that is, people that would break down the facets of Paul's gospel like I'm doing, sort of the pastor's job. And these teachers stayed there and taught the Galatian churches very well. Then came in the teachers with authority, they said, from Jerusalem. And they maligned Paul. They brought this other gospel, which is justification by adherence to the letter of Torah, With a recognition over here, a marginalized Jesus as Savior who died for our sins, yes, but that's over there. And hardly any reference to the Holy Spirit. So these teachers that were overwhelmed, these the catechetical instructors that Paul left there were overwhelmed by these heavyweights who were famous. So they ran over to Paul who was somewhere in Achaia or possibly even in Macedonia and they said this... (laughs) is as uh, 
Lewis Martin said when he, they came to him, Paul must have seen the look on their face, and he said, oh, no. And they told him the story. And so Paul dictated Galatians, and he sent these instructors under him back to Galatia. They gathered the churches together. This is what they did customarily. They gathered all the churches together. They sat down, and they dramatically portrayed this letter. They knew Paul. These people, these teachers would have said, used Paul's cadences and Paul's accent and Paul's emphasis and all of the things about Paul, and they would have hammered this thing home. And that's what happened also in Romans. That's why Romans 1, 18 to 32, they understood in the tenement churches in Rome, and they all gathered together, they understood when Phoebe or some other person read Romans that they did it in a dramatic style in which Romans 1 18 to 32 would not be the voice of Paul but an ad hominem or a parody of this false teacher's turn or burn message a cue that we've missed we think we've progressed so far but I want to get on with this a little bit before we wind it up tonight The faithfulness of Jesus Christ can never be disengaged from his love or from God's love in Christ Jesus. God loved the world so much that he sent his son into the world to experience the human condition, to redeem humanity from its desperate plight. The son so loved the world that he gave himself his very life for our sins to deliver us from this present age. And the Father and the Son loved the world so much that they sent the Spirit on a divine mission, the second mission, to incorporate humanity into the downward and upward trajectory of Christ. So that Paul, who understood this, said, I was crucified with Christ. I was incorporated by the Spirit into the downward trajectory of Christ. Nevertheless, I live because I was also incorporated into the upward resurrection trajectory of Christ. It is not longer, no longer me that lives, but Christ lives in me now. The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, which obviously is continuing in the church. Or even better, in Romans 1.5, it's continuing among all the pagan nations. Paul says he was commissioned He was given grace and apostleship or grace as his apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith in all the nations, which is a participation in Messiah's faithfulness. Once again, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ cannot be disengaged from his love or from God's love in Christ Jesus, as it's called in Romans 8.39, nor can we ever be separated from that love. Again, I'll say this, the life, says Paul, that I now live in this mortal human body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Jesus Christ, faithfulness worked by love. His faithfulness worked was dynamized by love. 
Likewise, as Galatians 5, 6 teaches, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Why? Because both belong to the passé age, as does Judaism, as does male and female in Genesis 1, 27. Paul says it's impossible for you now in Christ to be male and female, not because you can't have a gender anymore. He was saying, quoting or Extracting from Genesis 1.27, in the first creation, God made them male and female. What Paul is saying is you can't be part of that first creation anymore at all. You're in Christ Jesus. It's impossible for you to be Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. It's impossible for you to be slave or freeman. Scythian or barbarian. It's impossible for you to be male and female. All he's saying by all that is it's impossible for you to go back to the first creation. What avails now is a new creation, altogether new. All things are made new. The old has passed away. So then, In Christ Jesus is where we are. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything, but read it. In Galatians 5, 6, it says, but a faithfulness working by love. As a faithfulness worked by love in Jesus Christ, so our lives are now a faithfulness that works by love. And that's God's love. A faithfulness that's dynamized by God's love, which allows us to participate in Messiah's faithfulness. That's what Galatians 5, 6 says. And this love is also the love of God. For when we deal with the phrase, the love of God, we're dealing with a similar concept as the faith of Christ. The love of God also tips its scale toward a subjective genitive. The love of God has been poured out into our own hearts. By the Spirit who was given to us, says Romans 5 5. Or it's called the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The interpretation is by the subjective genitive as well. It is God's own love, or as Bernard Lonergan defined it, God's gift of his love. God's gift of his love. Love activates fidelity. Not my love for God. God's love for me activates fidelity, Christ's own fidelity in me. It makes fidelity effective in Christ Jesus, whether in Christ Jesus means in himself corporeally as he goes to the cross or in all of us corporately and empowered by the Spirit. What matters is a new creation and the law of the new creation is called the law of the kingdom. It's also known as the royal law of love. So let's back up slightly in order to further clarify what I call the Torah of faithfulness, or perhaps better, the Torah of Messiah's fidelity. Let's gather up some strays, to use a cowboy analogy. Gather up some stray verses in Paul's epistles, which manifest the Christological nature of faith and of faithfulness. Philippians 3.9. Did I actually say to turn there? Boy, that's a strange one. You actually get there. Philippians 3.9, Paul writes, 
Once again, I have the Greek in front of me. So, me ekon emen dikaiosune tain eknamu. Having not the righteousness that comes from the law as a source. Allah tain diapistios Christu. There's another use of it in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 all the way to 4.3 is a reprint or we could say a reprise of a letter that he had previously written to Philippi. And in Philippians 3.1, he says, it's not grievous for me to repeat this. He said, I've said this to you before. It was in another letter. He actually reprised or reprinted, as we could say, or rewrote a passage of a previous letter into what we have extant as Philippians. It's 3.2. Paul begins to warn them. Watch out, he says, for the dogs for the mutilators, for the evil workers. And in Philippians 3.18, as a kind of an echo of Romans 16.17, these are not servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own belly. Their God is their belly. They mind only earthly things. They're enemies of the cross of Christ because they marginalize it. They mind only earthly things and their end is destruction. But our orientation and our citizenship is in heaven from whence we expect a savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to come and change these bodies of humiliation and make them conformable to his own body of glory. A thing he's able to do, incidentally, by the same power by which he subjects everything to himself. I swear by myself, every knee will bow to me, says God. And every tongue confess. Swear allegiance to me, says Isaiah 45, 23. So in Philippians 3, 9, right in the square, in the middle of it, we have Paul writes this, not having my own righteousness, which comes from the law. On the contrary, that which comes through the faithfulness, pistios Christu. It's not just in Romans. It's not just in Galatians. It's also in Philippians. We're rounding up a stray verse. This is translated, not having my own righteousness, that which is from my adherence to the law or Moses' Torah, but that which is by the faithfulness of Christ, pistios Christu. Again, The great contrast or antinomy in the gospel and in the Romans and Galatians, the great contradictory dialectic is not between works performed in obedience to the law and personal faith in Jesus Christ. The great contradiction is between the works performed in adherence to the law Versus the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. If it were my faith, there'd be a place to boast in me, by me. But it's Christ's faithfulness, so boasting is radically excluded. Besides, man is totally depraved, if we want to use Calvinistic language, which means he's radically incapacitated, both epistemologically, that is, in his knowledge or capacity to reason God, because only God reveals God. God alone reveals God. Creation doesn't reveal God fully. 
So the only way that we know God is to be in Christ, who is God, who reveals God, and in the Spirit, who is God, and who reveals God. So in Philippians 3.9, this is translated, not having my own righteousness, that which is from my adherence to the law, but that which is by the faithfulness of Christ. So importantly, this is also followed by a phrase, This time we have another use of the word faith in Paul that's revealing. We have epi, te, piste, E-P-I, T-E. I got to get the right square here. E-P-I, looks like this in the Greek, te, piste. Now, this time we don't have Christu here, but we have the reference being Christ already. So we have in Philippians 3.9, it goes on to say, the from God righteousness based on the faith, based on the faith, based upon epi te piste. What is the faith upon which this gift of righteousness, which is the saving act of God in Christ for Paul, where does that rest upon? Upon the faith. Whose faith? Mine? That's how many people translate this, based upon faith or my faith in Christ. No, it's based upon the faithfulness. It's based upon the fidelity of Messiah, the righteousness. This brings up an important point now. Sometimes we have a phrase like te piste. It doesn't say Christu after it. It doesn't even say autu after it, which would be his faith. It simply says the faith or the faithfulness. So the faith or the fidelity that's indicated is not immediately connected to Christu. So what do we do about it? Well, in this case, the faith or the faithfulness mentioned refers to the faithfulness that preceded in the same verse, which is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying the righteousness which I have, which is another way of saying my salvation, because God's righteous act is his rescue of his people unconditionally. And so my possession of God's righteousness is simply my possession of that salvation, which he enacted in Christ for me. So what Paul is saying in Philippians 3.9 is the righteousness which I have, that is my salvation, is the righteousness of God or a salvation enacted by God, epitapiste, upon the basis of the faith, the fidelity of Messiah. This continues the Torah of the fidelity of Messiah. The Torah of Messiah's fidelity. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for in it, in it, by it, the righteousness of God, the righteous saving act of God in Christ, his rescuing deliverance is being revealed. Apocalypto. Who's not listening? Churches? Christians? Who is listening? People you'd never expect some of whom have given up, some of whom have become atheists, not because they're true atheists. These guys don't square away as atheists. They are atheists because they have denied the existence of the God of the Christian church. That, to me, is a step in the right direction. I also reject the God worshipped by the Christian churches if his primary characteristic is retributive justice. 
when the Bible tells me that God is love, the Bible tells me that God is unshakable, limitless benevolence. So the Bible does not tell me, as I once thought it did, because I had a different horizon, a different standpoint, that God saves me from his retributive justice by pouring out his retributive justice on Jesus so that Jesus saves us from an angry God. The Bible doesn't tell me that. The Bible says the righteous one died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He wants to bring us to the God who revealed that kind of love, where Christ died for the ungodly. This is a Christological soteriology. So I would argue, and believe me, I take this seriously, that I would actually make this argument. I would argue that the fidelity of Jesus Christ is the meaning of te piste or epi te piste. This is a Christological soteriology. This is part of the Torah of Messiah's fidelity. This is the heart of the gospel, which call, Paul calls my gospel. Now it's mine. Is also yours once you appropriate it. This gospel is moreover the gospel of God about his son. Don't make it about you. Don't make it about me. Don't make it about my faith, your faith. Make it about Messiah's faith. And you're starting to appropriate it. This gospel of God about his son. His son is born of a descendant of David, Katasarka, according to the flesh. The means by which he entered into the condition of humanity in this evil age. And demonstrated also to be God's divine son by his resurrection from the dead by the spirit of sanctification in Romans 1.4. Let's look at another case where faith or faithfulness is used alone without an immediate indicator of whose faith it is. Romans 5.1. We've looked at this before, but I gotta, I'm looking. It's like a diamond. There's different facets of a diamond. You've got to look at it from different angles. Romans 5.1 Accordingly says, accordingly, literally, being justified by faithfulness is how I would construe that. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the justification here is better understood as the liberation from the superhuman powers of sin and death and the flesh and principalities and powers. And that liberation is by the faithfulness of Christ who is the one who God handed over for our sins in Romans 4.25, right before that. The one whom God handed over for our sins and resurrected for our justification or liberation or rescue or better than all of those together, deliverance. So it doesn't make sense to me then to say, therefore being justified by faith, my personal faith. No, there, if God handed him over, for our sins and raised him up for our justification, then our justification must have happened because of the faithfulness of Christ, not my faith. So what's normally not construed as the faithfulness of Messiah, I would say should be Romans five, one accordingly, then being justified by faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this justification is a liberation from these superhuman powers that we could not have liberated ourselves from. It is by the faithfulness. You know what else we do when we say that faith, by definition, is the means of appropriating salvation? We're all done with faith after we get saved. 
Faith then loses all kinds of meaning in life then. And where our faith is just, well, I'm in Christ and that's all I need to know and I believed and I appropriated salvation through my faith. And and faith loses its punch. It loses its meaning. It loses its participatory spiritual power. Faith is a mighty and awesome thing when we participate in Christ's faithfulness, when it's a gifted participation with him. When he says to us, have a deep and abiding faith. Have it. So it's by the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are accordingly justified and therefore have peace with God. This also is in complete agreement with the declaration of the gospel by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that goes like this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The saving act of God in Christ reconciled the world. When we are reconciled to God, we have peace with God, as Romans 5.1 says, and we have it through our Lord Jesus Christ, who said in another place, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as this world gives it. Ekpistios, then, is used in Romans 5.1, arguably at least... Let's let the battle rage on. I'll say arguably arguably at least refers to the fidelity of Messiah. All I want you to do is get the point that the gospel of Christ is the revelation of Messiah's fidelity. Still another case, Ephesians 3.12, also known as Laodiceans. D.B. Wallace even brought this up. En ho ekomen ten parasian kai prosagogen en pepoithese dia tes pistios autu. There it is again. Tes pistios autu. The faith of him. Who's him? What the translation of this says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through the faithfulness of him. Who's him? if not Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus in Ephesians 3.11. It's him. It's his faithfulness. We have access. And as Romans 5.2 agrees, this also agrees with the central idea of Romans 5.1 and 2, which after declaring our deliverance through the faithfulness of Messiah, we not only have peace with God, but as Romans 5 goes on to say, we have also obtained access in fact, the Byzantine text adds at this place, tain te piste, by faithfulness. We have also obtained access by faithfulness, Messiah's faithfulness, into the very grace in which we are caused to stand. Note the common theme of access by Messiah's faithfulness in Ephesians 3.12. And Romans 5, 1 to 2. Why can I approach the throne of grace to receive help in time of need? Because of my faith? No, because of Messiah's faithfulness by which he went into the region beyond the veil. We have access with confidence by the faithfulness of Messiah. Thank God it's not by our faith. I really thank God for God. So we've already paralleled Many of these verses, we've corralled the usual culprits, stray ones, where the faithfulness of Messiah is specified. Romans 1.17, 3.22, 3.26, 
Galatians 2.16 times 2, Galatians 2.20, rounding up all of these verses in Paul's entire corpus. We are, be- we are being given a clear view of the ark. What happened in Joshua, from a certain standpoint, you would look down and see the priests carrying the ark through the Jordan splitting the waters of the Jordan so that all the people of God could go into the promised land. And God said, I want you to have a clear view of that ark. And that's what he's giving us, a clear view of the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus to the extent of death by which we have access into this promise, into this promised land. Like John and Paul We are seers of a divine apocalypse of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. This is what the Holy Spirit's been after here since early days in Rev the book. Like John and Paul. John, who was given by the Father the revelation of Jesus Christ to show to his slaves in the churches. Like Paul, who said, I did not receive my gospel from men, but by a, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Like John and Paul, we are seers of a divine apocalypse of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. We are seers with the eyes of our heart of a revelation of Messiah's saving fidelity. Wednesday and Thursday night has been an unearthing of an uncut diamond and the attempt to cut it a little bit and to have you see it a little more clearly. We thank you, Father, for the fidelity of your Son by which your righteousness is manifested. We thank you, Father, for the saving act that you have initiated and completed in your Son who is the end or the fulfillment of Torah. We thank you for the fact that we can rely utterly and totally on his fidelity upon which our salvation rests. What security there is there. What rest, what stillness, what obedience is wrought in us to be still and to know that you are God. 